0: Hello and welcome to Inspire, our series where we talk to interesting people and share their learnings. Today we are joined by Dr. Andrew Danze, Senior Lecturer in the field of Humanitarian Engineering at the University of New South Wales. Hi Andrew, we're happy to have you here.
1: Hi Hugo, thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay, let's get started by diving into Humanitarian Engineering. Both your teaching and work outside of teaching has been involved in the topic of Humanitarian Engineering. How has your definition of humanitarian engineering changed over time?
1: Mm. Uh, that's, that's a very good question. This is something we discuss with our third year students um, who study the fundamentals of humanitarian engineering. And what I the, the core thing for humanitarian engineering is that it provides appropriate and sustainable technologies and solutions. It's important that those solutions are integrated within societies and have a human-centered um, approach. But where it changes for me where where I think I'm trying to change humanitarian engineering coming from a, a, a science background is that integration of humanitarian solutions within the broader environmental um, context. So things like nature-based solutions, ensuring you have healthy and productive ecosystems um, will provide a lot of uh, buffer against hardcore engineering solutions
0: quite interesting to see how the nature around us can actually solve lots of our modern solutions. For instance, I've seen a lot to do with modern cities and increasing green areas that increase drainage and make it more healthy and sustainable for everyone to live in.
1: That's right. And if we look at what nature um, has and can provide, um, a lot of that knowledge is also locked up in traditional knowledge or indigenous knowledge um, and coming in and making sure we learn about what was done in the past. Um, some Some of those things where we can bring them back. Um, Will make a less, or we'll make a more sustainable engineering solution that works within the natural environmental parameters.
0: In your current research, you're studying pollution in Pacific Island countries. How do you believe we could minimise pollution, air pollution into the future and maximise quality there?
1: air? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, not many people would think about poor air quality when they think about um, Fiji or the Solomon Islands and other Pacific Island countries where, where we're working. Um, but we're working with the Ministry of Health in the Solomon Islands and with Fiji National University in Fiji, um, as well as QUT and UQ in Australia, um, to look at air quality, because the increase in respiratory illness in um, the population, especially children under five, um, is, has been quite dramatic. And the Ministries of Health are concerned about that. And so we're trying to pinpoint exactly what are these major causes of air pollution um, and do some innovative field sampling and laboratory analysis with the in-country partners to try and determine this. And so we've still got the project um, uh, underway at the moment. But of course, the big big obvious ones um, are the um, uh, burning of uh, fossil fuels for transport. Um, So petrol and diesel engines, um, the burning of rubbish by the roadside as well, and also agricultural waste affects air quality. Um, And then as well in the Pacific Islands, you have um, a lot of power suppliers provided by large diesel generators. Um, so, you have, you have the energy is a big part and, and the transfer um, from fossil fuels to renewables um, for energy production in the Pacific is something that's happening. The Pacific Islands are leading that charge in many, many ways and have really ambitious targets for 2030 and they're moving towards them, which is really exciting. And so, the data we're gathering is going to help inform how those policy decisions are made, um, will then affect air quality. So, if you have improved energy generation. Um, uh, improved in the sense of air, air quality emissions, so transfer from diesel to solar or other renewable energies, um, and having um, uh, measures that will control the uh, emissions from road transport as well. Um, those kind of things will have a big impact on the exposure to humans, which is where we really, it's the nexus of all the problem we're looking at.
0: And yeah, as you said, like no one would actually think that air quality would be a problem in such like island paradises as Fiji and others like it. But it seems like you're doing really great work there. And I look forward to see how it ends up going.
1: Yeah, we're very lucky to have a very um, uh, embedded uh, team on the ground.
0: Now something more career focused for the, our viewers focused on moving forwards in their careers. You've been in a variety of leadership roles and organisations and large teams with millions of dollars of funding backing them. What have you found to be the most useful leadership roles in your life and what do you look for in leaders that you are keep recruiting to your team? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, that is, that is a very good question. And um, I've been fortunate enough to have different have roles in um, the private sector, um, in the United Nations systems, um, in, with an um, NGO and now at the university. And your lead, leadership is a, is a thing that I think um, is very personal. I think you have to build on your strengths and not try and be someone that you're not. Um, personally, I like to lead from behind, I suppose, and and support people. and if you've done the tasks that you're trying to get people to do, then you can understand what's required and you can support people as needed. Um, I think reaching out to people when you uh, not only when you need something, um, but maintaining those relationships are really important when you've when you've got teams that are in different countries or in different time zones and and how to build build that rapport. Um, I think yeah building people up, investing in them, everyone's on the same team and moving forward together. Um, I think that's that's something that I would say would be you know, important for leadership is to, to work together and invest in your people and think about what their priorities, what their needs are as well.
0: That's a great way of viewing it. And I noticed that when you said make um, something along the lines of giving people roles that you'd also be happy doing, I've heard that's a really important skill in teaching as well, where I, in teaching courses, as I've done in the past, they say never give a student a job or a challenge that you wouldn't be happy doing yourself. And I love the overlap there.
1: And perhaps even just as important, giving them a role that um, you may not be happy doing that you've done before. You know, with, with all kinds of projects, there's going to be, there's going to be the little more mundane tasks, um, such as, you know, data gathering or, or those kind of things. Um, and if you haven't done there and be in the trenches yourselves, uh, yourself, then it's, then it's also harder to, to, to work with those people, I think, you know, making sure people are exposed to a variety of tasks that stimulate them and excite them and are aware how they contribute to the bigger picture um, is an also an important part of working in a team.
0: That makes perfect sense. And I noticed following your career that you actually transitioned into teaching after specialising more in engineering. What were the factors that made you make that jump or transition?
1: Uh, yes, a very good question. Um, so I would have had a less traditional academic career path, I suppose. Um, and when I completed my master's um, in South Australia, I went and worked in the private sector for three years um, for a private consulting company. Um, and then I went and worked for the United Nations for eight years, um, the United, United Nations University, and also doing some work with um, uh, UNICEF and REACH, um, which is a project run by the University of Oxford. And, that, and when I was working um, for the United Nations University, I realized that without a PhD, I was getting too far away from the problem solving side of things that I really liked and coming more down the managerial path. And it was the, the problem solving that I really enjoyed. Um, and instead of me doing it, I was, I was managing other people that got to do that. Um, so I went and did, a, career, I went and did a, a PhD a bit later in my career um, and was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to Oxford University and did my PhD there. And that's where I was exposed to teaching. Um, teaching is not something I thought I would have um, enjoyed or had never been on my radar really. But being in that system and having the small tutorials that are part of the undergraduate degrees at, at, at Oxford, I was, I was in a post, postgraduate, just really enjoyed working with the, the younger generation that had all these ideas and had all these new ways of looking at things that I hadn't considered um, and really, really enjoyed the teaching and did as much as I could when I was there. And then after completing my PhD, I was stuck with having um, experience on one hand in the UN and the development um, sector, and then on the other hand uh, a PhD um, in environmental science and earth system science um, and how to best combine that and the university offers offers that chance and UNSW is doing some really exciting stuff in the field of humanitarian engineering so I'm really fortunate to be able to come here and uh, uh, be a senior lecturer in humanitarian engineering Um, and part of that is the teaching um, of the students that are interested in this space so I'm really lucky I get the students in their third and fourth years that have already um, got the engineering basics they're coming to this course because they want to do it it's not a requirement so I get to meet a lot of really interesting really passionate students um, which is wonderful.
0: I found that in higher years as well because once you get through all the traditional courses which are compulsory it's so strange to be able to choose your courses and be like this is actually what I'm going to be ending up doing in my career and everything like that and- it's such an interesting transition. What advice would you give to someone who is moving into the teaching field like you did?
1: Um, If you're moving into the teaching field, I think, yeah, get experience helping out with demonstration and things like that as you can. Look for support roles to be a teaching assistant. I did that as well for a master's degree in the UK. Um, If you do want to teach, it's all about being an effective communicator. Um, listening both ways. I really like um, active learning where it's not just here's some slides and then memorize them and write an essay, but trying to, embrace, uh, trying to embed the um, students in a situation where they're exposed to the real world problems. Um, we've got students currently working on a project in Uganda with a charity um, over there, the Love Mercy Foundation, and other students working with the Nepalese Development Research Institute um, as well um, as part of their course here at UNSW. Um, and working with these real world partners that have set these problems for the students to work on as part of a project based learning is something that you just can't convey through textbooks or slides or those kind of things. So really active learning is something that I would encourage them to also look at and, and work on.
0: It's so great to think that you can make such an impact still while learning your degree and not even having graduated. Another question I was wondering is what changes have you seen in the teaching space in modern era?
1: Um, so changes, I suppose, of course, most recently it's all everything's gone to online very quickly. Um, so that's a change now is the ability to, to work, you know, have your part-time job during the day and attend the lectures in the evening and that's something that can be very difficult from both the teaching and the learning side of things because you can't ask the questions, you can't have that discussion in class. Um, and that's something that is also a bit more difficult even when you go online as well. Um, it's much easier to have a discussion in a classroom than it is um, over Teams or Blackboard um that's a challenge I, I would see
0: yeah i completely see that and having like t- being a tutor at the moment and a student at the moment you get to see it from both sides and it's such a huge jump that we've been through in the last six to eight months like it's been insane just seeing everyone transition to online and yeah. seeing people thrive in online which yeah. is amazing <laughs> to see
1: and there's so much learning and so much experience that happens at university outside of the classroom as well. EWB being, being um, a perfect example of that, where you have your community of like-minded people coming together on the university campus and, and um, uh, working on problems or talking about projects. Um, so you would probably be experiencing that as well, I assume.
0: Yeah, it's been very interesting with EWB trying to connect with our audience while not being able to physically be with them and discuss concepts with them. And so we've been yeah, tra- facing that transition as well, which has been an interesting learning path. And this has actually come out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have any questions for us?
1: Um, I, would, yeah, I would like to ask you a question, actually. Um, I was thinking when think- preparing for this interview and about what the key things um, were for humanitarian engineering and the challenges the world faced. As uh, one of the co-presidents of the UNSW EWB chapter, Um, someone of of the upcoming generation for us to hand the baton over to. What do you see as the biggest challenges and the things that you should and would be working on in the field of humanitarian engineering?
0: Well, obviously the UN Sustainable Goals would be a good starting step, but I think carrying over the work that's been worked on for the past couple of years would be the perfect starting point and finishing off that. For instance, working on wage inequality between developing and developed countries, as well as working on wage inequalities in the modern world, and between different races, different genders, and other people in society. We also do need to make sure everyone is fed globally in a sustainable diet that is healthy, and make sure they can live long and prosperous lives, as well as working on the most, well, what should be the most worked on problem of our generation, which is climate change. And so that's what I see as what we should be progressing towards at the moment and what we are, in fact, putting our time into.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great to hear. There's some really big challenges there. Um, but yeah, you, know, you have a lot of really amazing people um, around you, and, and, and the, the, the future is, is bright.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew, today. It's been fantastic talking to you, and I really look forward to seeing what you work on next because everything you work on seems to be super successful and very helpful to the world around us.
1: No, no, yeah, my pleasure. And, yeah, thank you again for having me. And, um, yeah, it's always, always a pleasure to be engaged with EWB and, and, and the students on campus as well. Thank you.
0: Now I'll hand everyone over to Muskin and Ning for our reoccurring segment, Discussions of Interest. Enjoy. <laughs>
2: Hi guys, welcome to this week's podcast. Um, I'm Ningxin, this is Musken, and we'll talk about fast fashion today. So fast fashion is made possible through mass production and large scale factories. The fast fashion industry caters to a fast shifting customer demands through a shorter time scale in supply chain management. It provides clothes that changes constantly with the trends and are also inexpensive. The fast fashion industry has a negative impact on sustainability, and it also pushes the smaller manufacturers and artisans out of the main market. Uh, Some some of the common fast fashion companies we have today are H&M, Zara, Forever 21, and Boho. Since we need to make affordable clothing, it's very important for the material to be also inexpensive.
3: An interesting fact is that we're buying 60% more than we were 20 years ago. Textile production is one of the most polluting industries, producing 1.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year, which is more emissions than international flights and maritime shipping. So one of the most common materials for clothing is polyester, which is a plastic derived from crude oil. The use of artificial fibers such as polyester Have reduced the overall strain on natural fiber production such as cotton. However, there are other negative impacts caused by this increased demand in the plastic clothing industry. In fact, each polyester shirt is estimated to produce up to 5.5 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent. Microfibers are tiny thread-like pieces of plastic released from synthetic fabrics. Anywhere from between thousands to millions of microfibers are released into the water system per load. These microfibers are transported to the ocean where they are ingested by aquatic organisms and enter the food chain. Although cotton is a better alternative to polyester because it is a natural fiber, it has many environmental impacts. The most significant environmental impacts of cotton are greenhouse gases emitted during the manufacturing phase, water use within agriculture and manufacturing, and fertilizer and pesticide use. So I heard you talk
2: a lot about carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. So I'm thinking for all the fast fashion items that we dispose of, there must be like a lot of landfills and they probably have to burn it. And I'm thinking that that must also produce a lot of greenhouse gases.
3: Yeah, it produces a lot and also when they burn it a lot of toxins come out of the smoke when because of the plastics that are used in the fabrics yeah it's really bad for like the health of people around it yeah
2: so like about landfills since the fast fashion industry relies on cheap materials and they want to get out the latest fashion trends i think most of the item will end up in landfills after the season is over because like they they keep on changing it. So it's really bad for the environment. And not only that we have to reduce the usable space for landfills, but we also are wasting resources. And that means we are creating unnecessary pollution and other environmental issues associated with the production and disposal of those clothing items. I think it was estimated that Less than 1% of the material that is used in the production is recycled within the clothing industry. So that must mean like all this stuff is getting burnt off and and producing those like toxic waste, not waste, toxic fumes, I guess.
3: Yeah. That's like really and, bad. And it's like rarely reused again. So like, what was the point of all of the resources yeah. that went into producing it? Yeah. And the production
2: like also like creates pollution and everything. So like, it's also like really bad for the environment if we're wasting all that. Yep. I think recently like this, since like this issue has become a bit more widely known, um, there's a lot more concern about like fast fashion and sustainability of our clothing. So I've heard a lot of people are doing thriftings and like op shops are becoming a lot more popular these days.
3: Oh wow, that's really cool. It's good to see how like through that we can reuse the material over and over again. So that it, yeah, the use of like all of the resources, like it, it balances out. Yeah. Because of the long-term use of the product.
2: It's like that saying that a man's trash is another man's treasure.
3: Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's like you can focus on the quality of the product that way because higher quality clothes have a longer product life. So therefore, you're reducing waste and resource use as you're not buying as often. Yeah. So reducing the amount of yearly purchases um, can help lower the carbon footprint of all of these activities. Yeah, for sure. And. And also avoiding clothes containing polyester can be pretty challenging because it's like everywhere. Even in like the smallest of things, they'll be like, oh, this has polyester in it. It's always like, oh, 10% this, 20% that, 50% polyester. So a good alternative is trying to find recycled plastic plastics that are used in fabrics instead.
2: Yeah, I think we don't
3: recycle enough yeah like because recycled uh plastic it uses less energy than the original production and so it's much cleaner that way that sounds a lot better as well because like we're not taking unnecessary
2: resource from the earth and
3: oh yeah yeah like because we're just like cycling it around instead of like taking more and more yeah we're using whatever we have Mm So whatever's left is more
2: sustainable yep to continued use over and over yeah okay I, I guess that's it for today um thank you guys for listening to our podcast we'll see you in another two weeks bye bye